Welcome to Cursed Objects. My name's Dan Hancocks. I'm a journalist, author, spring enthusiast, and Docklands geek. How am I going to beat that? (laughs) Just tell us who you are, Kasha. And my name's Dr. Kasha T, and uh, I'm a little bit hungover, so (laughs) I feel like I'm going to be a very much a dead weight in this show. (laughs) You're foregoing a lengthy self-description. But it's going to be amazing. It's going to be packed full of japes. I I think I told you this earlier, but I think when you're hungover and you're recording a podcast or doing a panel discussion or whatever, you have a certain, like, manic energy sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like I'm demanding that you be manic now. You're very, you're, you're different types of hangover as well, right? You, if you want to be sort of quasi-conscious, and uh, that's fine. I'm very much just looking forward to listening to all of the stuff that you're going to be talking about today, Dan. That's very basically. kind of you. Uh, let's hope everybody else does. <laughs> so I yeah, t- today, if you haven't listened to Cursed Objects before, welcome to the party. Every week we uh, take a different object that is cursed, not in the Wiccan sense, but in the sense that it is weighted down with the uh, mores, the politics, the sort of society um, and the culture that surrounds it, particularly culture, I think. Mm. This is sort of cultural studies for people who never studied cultural studies, like me. But I did study cultural studies. Yeah, I know. (laughs) And without you, we wouldn't know what cultural studies was. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I bring the Docklands geekery. You've got the academic now, so it's as simple as that, really. You're too kind. You're too kind and wrong. <laughs> <laughs> kind and wrong. That's going in my Twitter bio. Um, so, yeah, this week uh, it's my turn. We take it in turns, right? Mm-hmm. This week it's my turn to bring in an object that I believe to be cursed um, uh, or cursed, if you are some of our... There's a sort of small militant faction of our listeners that are determined that we should add an accent to the E in cursed. And it's... I quite like playing up to them though. I, I flirt. Know. I flirt with them. I know. It's outrageous. I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna be that guy. I'm afraid it's cursed objects. <laughs> Staying that way. Um, but yeah, this week's cursed object is a mug with a depiction of Canary Wharf on it by an artist that has made it into a sort of quite homely, cutesy, sort of painterly image, which I think. It's sort of, that's an extra layer of curse. I mean, as you'll find out over the next hour, most of what we're going to talk about is the story of Docklands, uh, the, how the Docklands in London became Canary Wharf, became this totemic kind of structure of, of buildings that, um, this enclave, in fact, this sort of neoliberal privatised enclave that represents so much of the politics and the economics and sort of culture and society of the last 20 or 30 years and what that means and how sort of the built environment or sort of buildings in general can sort of embody the spirit of the age Mm. just like objects can albeit this object this mug is uh, as I say extra cursed in a way I think because it's presenting something that's glass and steel and sort of dangerously, weirdly, dystopianly clean yeah, like slick slick, just Mm. so slick 
I, I mean, I think tower blocks in general, but sort of glass and steel ones as opposed to sort of, you know, concrete uh, council estate blocks mm. have symbolised the future quite a while now mm. actually you know at least since the sort of 60s or, or 70s arguably going back to sort of metropolis and mm. sort of the the pre pre-second world war era but it's therefore kind of strange and slightly disingenuous to sort of render this place that is so clinically clean that is surveilled that is policed by private security the whole time as we'll talk about later um as somewhere that's homely and cutesy mm. and um has sort of slightly wavy edges and you know um is is somewhere that you might feel affectionate and warm mm. to because i don't think you know even people who like canary wharf no one no one has a sort of like no one wants sense, to cuddle it no one wants to cuddle <laughs> canary wharf thank you you've absolutely nailed it that's exactly <laughs> it like they might worship at the altar of the of the sort of you know futurity the the neoliberal futurity that it represents mm. the, you know let's make some bloody money kind of mm. uh, vibes that emanate off uh, off those towers but nobody wants to cuddle canary wharf <laughs> I don't know. It's weird, right? Because I have a bit of a... I've, I think actually we both share this kind of weird fondness for Canary Wharf, sure. even though probably not for the same kind of reasons as those people worshipping at the altar of the neoliberal <laughs> slickness that it represents, yeah. right? But we, the first time we met, we actually met in that Docklands That's area. Right. And we went to the Museum of London. And then we went a little, or we met outside the Museum of London in the Weatherspoons. We met in the Weatherspoons next door, yeah, which yeah. I think it's worth mentioning, both the Museum of London Docklands, which is, by the way, like my favourite museum in London, mm. and the Weatherspoons next door, which is one of the best Weatherspoons in London, I would say. <laughs> That's maybe a contentious view. It's obviously in a weird location that no normal person who isn't a banker is ever is, is likely to be going going through but um it is a fun place for a point i've got to say but mm. both of those buildings are oh, sorry both of those like entities are housed in what were once um warehouses for unloading basically the plundered loot of empire which is sugar grain i'm not quite mm. i can't quite remember off the top of my head but they were warehouses that were part of the old docklands mm. and have been kept and repurposed in a way that canary wharf the modern gleaming future mm. future city incorporates a lot of the signifiers and indeed buildings and you know the the slave traders for as well for that matter who were running the Docklands in the, from 1802 which is when when the docks first opened there the West India Quay first opened even the name West India Quay is is, is redolent of yeah. isn't it and like um, am I right in thinking that Canary Wharf is called Canary Wharf because it uh, represented that materials were coming from the Canary Islands is that right? I actually can't remember. Yeah. I, I think that's of, right. I think that might, yeah, I kind of, I think I read that somewhere. But it's such I think a fundamental thing for yeah. me to not know, isn't it? <laughs> can tell you why it's called One Canada Square yeah, or but... like the, uh, the, the main tower, but I actually forgot that. Yeah, no, I think that sounds right. Yeah. yeah and I think also, um, just like a little bit of like random knowledge is that the Museum of London, I think is an, is really, really great, does a lot of really good work. But I think also there was a little bit of pushback from some of the local communities around there who kind of felt like it was kind of cutesifying. Mm. I don't know, I guess it's kind of like marketing around. I think it's got like a bit connected to it, maybe called like the Rum Shack or something. And it kind of Oh yeah, felt... that's the restaurant next door. Yeah, and yeah, I, think, yeah. I think there was a little bit of pushback around some of the stuff that they were doing around there because it felt like a cutesifying of like quite a brutal history of colonialism. Oh, I mean, yeah. yeah. There's, and actually, if you guys want to go back to our first ever episode, the Houseplants episode, we talk about how the crimes of empire are sort of cheapened and 
euphemized mm. into conversations about or language about botanists. So basically, there there are a lot of references to like eminent men of the seas mm. who were like botanists or adventurers or explorers who were a big part of the docks in the 19th century. What they don't say is they were slave traders, mm. basically. Mm. And so so you've got this kind of yeah, references to rum and sugar. Like the history but no real but no real uncovering of like what yeah. those what those, well, what do they mean? Yeah, the history of rum like... and sugar is the history of slavery. Yeah. It doesn't say that on the yeah, hoardings exactly. that are outside the Museum of London Docklands. It doesn't say like you know and actually there was um a statue of a prominent slave trader was brought it was pulled down, as far as I can recall anyway, after the Colston statue, mm. but not by a crowd of activists this time. I think the council did it in response to the Colston thing. Basically, I think preemptively, mm, <laughs> like, mm. and you know, good, but also they hadn't heeded any of those criticisms for the decades prior. Mm. The people, people had been, you know, local people and campaigners and activists were saying, "Hey, how about we maybe just, if not, you know, decolonize in the sense of at least explain what the truth of this area is and mm. so on." But yes, uh, yeah, more brightly is where Kasha and I first met in the Weatherspoons. <laughs> Kasha was very hungover, but I think. <laughs> <laughs> seem to remember you drinking Guinness. Does that seem likely? <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I and was then, really, really And then w- once you'd had two pints <laughs> at lunchtime, you were then able to go around the museum, Yeah, I I'm think. really glad that this has come full circle as well. Like, I'm hungover today. Yeah. And I was hungover when we first met in yeah. the in the Weatherspoons. Actually, I think what happened was we didn't actually go into the museum that day. We <laughs> went to the Weatherspoons, and then we just went on, a, like, a little walk around That's that right. area. Yeah, you're right. And I think this is why I've got such a fondness for that area, because it was... Not really, I didn't really know much about it. And it was just amazing to go around with someone who knew so much about it. And there is this kind of eerie and strange stillness to the Docklands area. I think because they're docks, but mm. and because they're docks, they don't have tides. So it's almost like kind of a kind of still flat water. And when mm-hmm. I was a lecturer at the University of East London, I also felt like that. It felt a little bit like I was in purgatory or I was in like, some realm of such a good you know, way of or like it, some yeah. realm of death or something because nothing really seems to move. Yeah. So like when you are in Canary Wharf and it's like a city day and there's all of these like bankers and people in suits, the speed and velocity of like people's movements feels so bizarre when yeah. you match it with the kind of stillness and deadness of that space. Which is why it's weird on a Sunday. Oh my god, on like, a, it yeah. was a Sunday that we yeah, met as well. Was. It was so strange. It's sinister. It's really uncanny because you've got this area. I mean, in the same way that. To be fair, like go walking through the city of London, by which I mean the banking district of London, which is like mm. for people who don't who aren't from London, uh, as opposed to all of London. Mm. <laughs> I don't mean everything contained in the M25. I mean where the banks are, but it's like dead at mm. the weekend. It's like I always say, it's like go. Do you remember when you go into primary school to do a school play? Yeah, and all the lights would be off in the classrooms. Like, everything be so locked. Weird. I know it's so weird. <laughs> this is like it's absolutely flipped what I expect this place to yeah. be. I noisy as hell, yeah. full of life possibly a bit too much like you know and, like really in, and instead something's becalmed it you know mm. and actually the water is becalmed like you know on this on a very like not on non-windy day and I, I know what you mean the university of east london for those who don't know is also out by the docks um but a bit further out by the royal docks galleons which, reach which is a cool <laughs> name in a way isn't Pontoon it dock. yeah yeah i mean this is all they're all cool names mud shoot on the on the south south of the isle of dogs mm. just below canary wharf is so called because when they were digging the docks out so you have to you know to make a dock 
you need to dig up a lot of mud to mm. allow for the water to let the tall ships get in and actually be able to fit in without scraping the... <laughs> I was going to say that bombs. I just know so little about boats. <laughs> hull? Is it a hull <laughs> against the mud floor, against the bottom of the, the river? Um, and that mud was then dumped in the south of the island and hence mud chute became, right. uh, became the name of that area. But also, so we're walking around in this like super weird place, super eerie, dead Sunday, Canary Wharf vibe. And then we get to like the XL Centre mm -hmm. and then there's just all of these like anime kids. Do you remember yeah. the anime kids? And they were like doing like cosplay. Was it, an, it, was it like, must have been like an ex, like a huge expo for anime, was it? Some kind of like Comic-Con yeah, kind of thing, I don't right, know, the right. XL Centre. And oh. it was just so... It kind of added to this surreal. like really surreal like weirdness of the whole area. That it's like it feels like you might have died and you're in this yeah. kind of like, strange place. Kind of rubbing your eyes like what? Yeah, like what, what London have I woken up in here? It's like where are all like where are all the bankers that you imagine? They're not there because it's a Sunday, but it's just like. Pretty much there was like no one around for miles. Also, and then suddenly there's all of these like kids yeah. dressed up as like manga characters. I think it also bears saying again for people who haven't visited the area, like the XL Centre, which is a massive exhibition centre. Like most, you know, recently built exhibition centres in major cities, thinking about it, because I've you know, walked past the one in Liverpool as well. The way that and actually Liverpool and London, there's a lot of a lot of connections in what we're gonna what we're talking about today in terms of the kind of urban planning that creates this private mm. mass privatized regeneration zone, right? That they are these massive sort of exhibition centers are planted in such a way they have absolutely no connection with any nearby community, with mm. people. And the same is true for Canary Wharf itself as well as an area. Like and that's that's one of the things that fascinates me so much about it. It's why um, I like ended up instead of writing a book about grime in 2018, I essentially wrote a book about grime and things like Canary Wharf mm. and London and gentrification because I just realised these are completely inseparable things. Like a lot of the grime scene of the 2000s comes from Bow in East London or indeed the Isle of Dogs in the south of Canary Wharf. So really, just basically the area surrounding Canary Wharf and these towers, these sort of you know bankers' towers of one Canada Square is the main one that you probably recognise as the iconic one with like a pointy roof. Mm. And then, then there's the HSBC Tower and there's just, you know, all of the financial services industries that were, you know, instrumental in the global financial crisis of 2008. Mm. And but yeah, these towers were viewed with a really fascinating mixture of like revulsion, fascination and aspiration by the mm. grime scene. Like they mm. like all of the all of the kids that grew up making grime, Dizzy Rascal, Wiley, Rough Squad, like pe people that had grown up looking out at these these kind of towers that represented such extreme wealth while living in like some of the worst like most impoverished estates um, in the entire country, never mind in London, like, mm. you know, Tower Hamlets, for those who don't know, Tower Hamlets, the borough that Canary Wharf is situated in and it's for a very long time been, I mean, its entire history, East London, has been the poorest part of London. Mm. For, for 2,000 years, that's what mm. it's been. And for a really long time, I mean, certainly as long as I can think the records go back in this way, the indices of multiple deprivation, which is a way of measuring different types of poverty, so it's, you know, income poverty, health, and various other things added up, like Tower Hamlets has always been in like some of the worst, you know, among the worst boroughs in London and in the country, and yet you can have this like this amazing quote, which I feel like I've quoted a million times in a million contexts from DJ Target, formerly of Roll Deep, mm -hmm. um, now like Supremo at One Extra, host mm -hmm. of like 
the is it called UK rap game? Yep. Which Cash got me into. It's good fun. <laughs> um, so like Target, absolute legend. Like his book about crime is amazing. Came out the exact same time as mine. Uh, tells his own sort of story. But he told an interviewer in 2005, Canary Wharf is like our Statue of Liberty. It pushes me on. It's like all the money is there and it's an inspiration to get your own. So it's like this just totemic kind of thing that if you're growing up in poverty and you're seeing that for Target, that says mm -hmm. like you can get out of the three flats. I mean, I don't think you grew up in the three flats, but like one of these estates in Tower Hamlets that um, has untreated poverty in it and has done for decades, essentially. You know, there's the aspirational model. Get over there, get over the other side of Tower mm. Hamlets, break through the citadel, essentially, mm. through the fortress surrounding this wealth. Uh, and it is a fortress, and that's one of the things that fascinates me so much about it. If you try and walk from Bow, or anywhere in sort of the main bit of London, to Canary Wharf from the north, or indeed from Isle of Dogs in the south, it's really hard. Yeah. Like, it's really yeah. hard to get there on foot. Um, there is a de facto kind of, you know, it doesn't have crenellations. It's basically like a castle wall around mm -hmm. it, like a medieval wall, um, which is constructed not in bricks. It doesn't, it's not literally a wall, but there is the A13. Um, there is the A216, I think. Um, so two massive A roads. Mm -hmm. There's Billingsgate Fish Market, though I think that's moving soon. There's the DLR um, Docklands Light Railway sidings, i.e. like just loads train crap mm, mm. <laughs> i'm using a lot of technical jargon today aren't I? <laughs> um, but like all of these massive kind of bits of like brownfield infrastructure mm. and major roads which mean that you can just about do it i think but you have to you feel like you're almost breaking and entering mm. because the idea is that people either increasingly the wealthy people that work in canary wharf live right there mm. uh, and that's a new development really in the last few years and in the years to come that they're building loads of residential towers to go with all the office ones but otherwise you're coming on the jubilee line mm. basically or the dlr mm. uh, from your fancy pad wherever that is from your or from your gated block in somewhere in london straight into the heart of it without having to like encounter any of the poverty and it's this idea mm. of two cities side by side i think in you know when i say side by side literally cheek by jowl yeah. that interests <clears throat> me so much about canary wharf so what you're saying is is that when they created and developed canary wharf there was like an explicit idea to keep local communities or those or the people from surrounding communities away from i guess what the the kind of aspirational money, moneyed yeah. uh, industries that were going to be there. There was certainly no attempt to involve them. So mm. maybe it's worth actually just going back to like explain where Canary Wharf come came from in the first place. Like, mm -hmm. so Canary Wharf is the term used to describe the area. It's the name of the train station. It's often used to describe that main tower with the pointy roof. That mm -hmm. point, that tower is technically called One Canada Square, which seems needlessly pedantic. It's fine to just refer to that as Canary Wharf, but it's mm. kind of all Canary Wharf. And it was created in, the, the story sort of begins in the 70s with the decline of the docks. So you've got like tens of thousands of people working extremely hard for really bad pay, mm. um, living in poverty in that area, but they did have work. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the people that were living in the Isle of Dogs, you know, some of the stories I've read of what life was like, even in the fifth, sort of 40s and 50s, um, living there, you know, you'd have like 
sometimes just water would just like flood the <laughs> flood the living room and wow. stuff like um but people say oh there's a great sense of community as well there was also a lot of poverty and then the work all disappears incredibly quickly really mm. in the scheme of things and unexpectedly with containerizations so they build these big those big metal shipping containers mean that basically they don't need they they you know removes human <laughs> the need mm. for human labor a stroke essentially so tens of thousands of jobs are lost in the 70s uh, sort of beginning in the 60s. And then Michael Heseltine. Yes, um, I know him well. Leo not 9 sort of hair. <laughs> Do you not? All right. No. Yeah. I, look like, I look like the kind of person that would be friends with him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see you guys on, on the lash. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, maybe not. Uh, but he yeah. loves poles, what can I say? <laughs> Does he really? No. <laughs> <laughs> just like, you just like know loads of weird details about Michael Heseltine's biography. I don't, I must say, so I'm willing to, I can be taken in by all that stuff. What I do know is that he was in a helicopter flying over the Docklands when he was, mm. I think, aviation minister under Margaret Thatcher mm. in 1979 or 80, very, very early in her... Um, yeah, he became Minister for the Environment really early oh, on. Oh, right, yeah. right. So that, yeah. okay, so that's probably what the role he was performing. But he was in a helicopter flying over the Docklands, seeing this vast expanse of mud and dirt mm. um, and the kind of incredibly heavy-duty waste that is produced by, like, something as, you know, mm. gra- grand as, like, shipping that's just sort of been left there sort of in piles of rusting, uh, you know, metal and stuff. And has a light bulb moment essentially and it's like we need to transform this this is like this is the potential to you know be a completely a a new sort of second city like as in a new financial center for Mm. london right to rival the one around bank and moorgate and stuff like that in fact he said you know he says in this documentary i was watching on youtube this morning the challenge for me was to bring life back to deprived areas Mm. i mean it's deprived in that there's nothing there apart from mud Mm. But it's the deprivation on the, you know, around it in the Isle of Dogs and in Tower Hamlets and in East London in general that he allegedly is is uh, going to bring life back to and completely fails to. So what they do is they create something called the, an Urban Development Corporation, mm-hmm. um, which is a slightly grand name for a big old quango that removes the need for any like planning laws or regulations basically do what the hell you want sounds good get get stuck in <laughs> i can't see any problems no no right, yeah what, what could possibly what go could wrong what could possibly go wrong <laughs> so it's um the idea is like that you know in the same way that trickle down economics it mm-hmm. posits that if you have billionaires um, and allow billionaires to continue to thrive and which they have in the last few decades and it's like the, the number the number has multiplied <laughs> yeah. you know at an extraordinary rate in the last 20 years look those stats up it's incredible how many mm. uh, how many super rich people um, have been created essentially in the last, or have had that wealth created in the last couple of decades off the backs of the people working for them obviously and the way that our governments choose to you know, not tax them basically, mm. and, and not and not sort of limit their potential to accumulate insane amounts of wealth. Wealth in the same way that's supposed to trickle down to their workers and doesn't. The idea is that you create something like Canary Wharf as a gleaming series, you know, metropolis, a mini metropolis mm. of like of uh, finance capital, mm. and that helps people in the council estates somehow. Now, but get, it does. But that's the thing. Guess it was what? Like, it doesn't yeah, work. But it was explicitly <laughs> not created for the people in the local area because of, of exactly what you're talking mm. about about the like urban planning that went into mm-hmm, it, right? Mm-hmm. And they weren't consulted yeah, really, yeah. No, not seriously, not ever. And there was a there was a people's plan 
you know, there were there were protests against it, but there was also an alternative proposition here mm. for how you transform the Docklands mm. in a way that benefits the local people. It wasn't even looked at. It's just so interesting because from the get-go, it was so clearly not something that was like rooted in the area that was supposed to make the Absolutely. area better. It was almost conceptualised, from my understanding, as a space that was supposed to benefit the country and London. Mm. It was like imbued with a significance that like took it outside of its local geographical mm. space and actually it became... I think the thing that's so striking about Canary Wharf is it's so clearly an ideological space. Mm-hmm. It's not just mm. like here's this. I mean, I know that all I know that all like buildings in some way are ideological or have ideas underpinning them. But like, like your house, my <laughs> <laughs> exactly like my weird house. Yeah. But like you know, there is something really clear there. I think the ideological concerns of Canary Wharf are so are so like gleaming they yeah. gleam as as much as like the silver and the, the sun off the glass no it's so know? true it is an ideological space that's so perfectly put and and there's a wonderful quote from someone called sue brownell who wrote like the you know most thorough book really about the development of the docklands which is which is fantastic if you're a nerd like me anyway where, where she said that canary wharf is quote the spatial expression of the 1980s mm. and so here here contained in this sort of deregulated space which you know basically created a gold rush through mm. the 80s and 90s it went up and down and maybe we don't have time to for me to get into all of the details but they they did go bankrupt at one point like yeah, they all, like the it all went, 90s, it all went, went completely shit. tits up like you know this was this was uh this was never a foregone conclusion mm. that this would a work or b look like this. Mm. Like the Canary, the Docklands of the nineteen eighties were when the DLR was launched, for example, looked very different. Looked very the architectural style is very postmodern, mm. uh, which means lots of like bright colours and slightly wacky design, which you know I think describes the DLR, which I bloody love by the way. It's fantastic. But it would be I really low I'm rise. I love whenever I'm on it and I text you and you're like, I hope you're at the front and you're pretending Absolutely. that you're driving it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's the only it's the only way to travel. It's the only way to travel. And if there is a kid there, yoink them off. Yeah. Like, you know, show like yeah. use that muscle. Yeah. You know. Well, you're use... older, older, wiser, you know. Well it's just the you know, it's the spirit of Canary Wharf as exactly. well. Which is just like <laughs> <laughs> And you know, maybe it'll trickle down to them one day that they will get to sit yeah. at the front and drive, day, pretend to drive day. it. The um the deregulation is worth sort of saying they're like you know, what was different for the businesses that wanted to move there? Well, they basically had, like, no business rates. They they would have had all the usual conditions that would apply to both building and, indeed, moving offices or moving your company to there mm. uh, were, were removed to just sort of stimulate this, uh, yeah, massive gold rush to the area. Um, the I was looking at Anna Minton's brilliant book, Ground Control, which, by the way, is basically the book in, like, circa 2009, I think it came out, that kind of got me into urban studies mm. like I don't, think, I don't think I realized I was interested in that I just thought I was interested in London because I was from London and then read this fantastic book by Anna Minton and it sort of prompted a whole new aspect of my career and journalism mm. and interest and stuff so shout out for that to, to one Anna who's also a good friend now um but she quotes Nigel Spearing the Labour MP from the in, in the 80s from Newham the local Labour MP who said that the whole of Canary Wharf needed less planning scrutiny than the change of use from a news agent to a fish and chip shop uh, which is a bit hyperbole but I think it's fair and then likewise uh, Simon Jenkins now a Guardian columnist mm. um said said at the time that the the way that the this urban development corporation which is called the LDDC i.e. the thing that was running the transformation the London Docklands Development Corporation resembled a colonial edict imposing emergency rule on a defeated tribe 
which is the uh, wow. yeah deep wow. <laughs> in the sense that like you know the central government has decided what this area is going to look like anyone who lives in the surrounding area uh, is you know is will suffer the consequences basically or will like it or lump it you know mm. And when we say lump it, I mean, they had nothing else they could do. They are, I think, even being priced out, like people, working class people are being priced out, even of the areas around Canary Wharf now. So mm-hmm. actually that, even that sort of divide is starting. And that's, but that doesn't mean trickle down's working, that's gentrification. Yeah. <laughs> just gentrification is maybe slightly, is bleeding. It's not bleeding out from Canary Wharf, but it's just affecting London so completely now mm-hmm. that like, you know, a lot of the poverty is being pushed out to areas like, well, Barking in the east mm. and then sort of south to sort of Bromley and Croydon area. Because mm. there is still, like, huge deprivation on, like, the Isle of Dogs, isn't there? Like, it's not an area that is... I think there's a really amazing... Um, I listened to it, actually, fairly recently. Um, it's, like, an audio podcast documentary thing on the BBC called mm. like The Long Shadow of Canary Wharf where yeah, oh, cool. someone is exploring um, I can't remember her name but she's exploring she grew up on the Isle of Dogs and she's exploring kind of like living in the shadow of Canary Wharf right, right. and how strange that is completely like what you were describing earlier this idea of like having not that much like material wealth but being kind of just in the shadow of this uh, I guess space that ideologically mm. represents mm the making of money right the i was going to of... say it's a great metaphor it's yeah. in a way it's not even a metaphor like you are you know in yeah. that you have you have these high-rise blocks um overlooking what generally generally like low-rise kind of um sort of estates but beneath them i would i would just say to our listeners and indeed to myself as a note to for, for the future like i should i think the isle of dogs south i.e the area on this south of immediately south of canary wharf is probably starting to change demographically as well. Mm. And like new developments are starting to happen there. But yes, there is almost certainly still a lot of poverty there as well. Um, I just, I I can't speak to that as ministers (laughs) always say when they haven't done their homework. (laughs) I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I've walked around, I mean, you know, Isle of Dogs is a wonderful area to to have a walk around as well. And it is weirdly peaceful. You're by the river. I mean, it's, Mm. you know, that is. That is a wonderful thing, as far as I'm concerned. I'm a bit obsessed with the Thames, generally, you know. Mm. Um, as much as it's sort of, it's now sort of a dead river, I think. Mm. Like a lot of, you know, like like the Guadalquivir in Seville, which I'm also a bit obsessed with, in that, like, these were both rivers that brought home the, the sort of glittering pile of stolen and plundered loot, basically, mm. from areas that their respective nations, Spain and Britain, had colonised. And they were always bustling with activity and they were, you know, they were working rivers and I should have meant to say at the beginning, London only exists really because of the docks. Mm. It exists because of the docks because in 23 AD, the Romans set up shop there, mm. <laughs> essentially, and uh, thought the Londinium could be, this sort of slightly marshy area by the river could be a reasonable trading outpost mm. um, and through through history you know the history of the British Empire and therefore kind of the history of Britain and a lot of the rest of the world is sort of mediated through this this very very small part of London really mm. I went on a date with someone and we were by the river yeah and romantic. I was like yeah <laughs> and I was like I love I love the river like I, I was just mm. like you know I love being in London mm-hmm. and he was like I'm not really into it. Like he was like, yeah, I kind of like 
grew up around Richmond and like oh what <laughs> I grew up around did you Richmond. throw him in I honestly I honestly did <laughs> I was like I was very close I was just like well, this this is just over <laughs> so, before it's even begun that was just like that was an instant ick moment I was just like there was just I mean the fact he's yeah. from Richmond already has my sort of spidey sense slightly you know yeah I'm thinking rugby Tories but he lied and it's said a nice he was from Tooting otherwise oh, I would have oh, never I gone on a date with him yeah do you remember I would have never gone on a date so with him. Much. I know, it was peak. It was yeah, so peak. That's so annoying. All right, so uh, I kind of wanted to ask you a question because mm. I feel like there is a spectre haunting this conversation, right? So we're kind of talking about, kind of mentioned the idea of ideology. Mm-hmm. And I think something that is really overshadowing this conversation is, is that Ma- Margaret Thatcher and the role of Margaret yes. Thatcher in the development of Canary Wharf. Mm-hmm. And I know that there has been some debate over... Because Canary Wharf essentially is the poster child for a lot of the changes that she is said to have kind of brought in, right? So I kind yeah. of wanted to unpick a little bit this idea of Thatcher, Thatcherism, and Canary Wharf as the poster child for for what is Thatcherism or Absolutely. what became known as Thatcherism. Yeah, I mean, it was, she, she visited the West Quay, which is part of the sort of Docklands during its development in the 1980s, uh, in 1987, in fact, uh, to sort of trumpet it as mm. as this sort of you know very exciting new way of doing urban planning and new way of doing urban change basically, mm. i.e. <laughs> letting rich people do what they letting corporations do what they want basically mm. <laughs> without any of the rules affecting everybody else. And um, but yeah, she she I think described it on that occasion as Wall Street on water or certainly Wall Street on water in the making. Right. Um, incomplete at this point. Mm. Um, and I know that when she died, the BBC went there. I think it was in 2013, the BBC mm. went there and like interviewed like people in Canary Wharf. So, you know, there, there is this kind of connection in the popular imagination between mm. her and Canary Wharf mm. to the extent that when she died, people were like, well, the BBC were like, let's go and interview some people who are just having some pints. Yeah, they, in didn't, they, didn't, <laughs> they didn't go and interview some people in Brixton who were being beaten up by racist police or anything, which could have, you know, been one other possible way of well, like, exactly. <laughs> like exactly. Examining her legacy, yeah, um, and 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 sort of what what her time in power meant, um, but yeah, no, it absolutely is is a really good encapsulation of that of her political economy, essentially, of like her, the way that she ran the country. And to that end, I mean, I think that one thing I wanted to talk about in this episode was the idea of of the spirit of the age, because I think mm. Canary Wharf. I've like argued in my grind book and in various other places, and I would repeat it here that like Canary Wharf embodies the spirit of the early twentieth century or the late, the, you know, the the maybe the nineties and the and the early twentieth century from the New Labour era, in that absolute wild hubris that runs up to the financial crisis in two thousand eight, and of course Lehman Brothers were like based in Canary Wharf. Of course they mm-hmm. were. There's an amazing quote from someone called Peter Gowan that described. Canary Wharf as Wall Street's Guantanamo, by which he meant the things, and you can sort of guess the sort of things that got away with in Wall Street Mm. that allowed the 2007 sort of to 2008 sort of housing crisis happened there. You know the 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 freedom for basically banks and financial services industry uh, companies to get away with like rank criminality at the expense Mm. of ordinary people everywhere. But what Peter Gowan is saying in that quote is that there are certain things that even the American economic regulators and financial regulators are, are, would say are verboten, are just mm. off, off limits, 
So they all went to Canary Wharf to do them instead, in the same way that America sent its torturers mm. to Guantanamo mm. because they couldn't do it under US law mm. on US soil. Um, so that's how bad Canary Wharf is in terms of the role it plays in... in uh, Laundering dirty money. Essentially, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, and and profiting off the misery of, like, the world's poor, essentially. Mm. But let's... Sorry, let's... I'm, I feel like we're get, I'm getting away from your question about Thatcherism, but I suppose what I'm saying is that... The, the spirit of Thatcherism continues into the modern age. And, you know, and Tony Blair, like, you know, been observed by many people, including, I think, Margaret Thatcher herself, was, like, essentially continuing her work with the New Labour Project in terms of his embrace of market economy, economics and, you know, the destruction of that post-war consensus that the welfare state might be sturdy and reliable and um, the Labour Party might even try and attain full employment one day for, for everybody. So, so what you're saying is is that the ideas kind of came about and were rooted in the 1980s, but they really kind of like came to full bloom yeah, and fruition absolutely. in the kind of 90s and early 2000s. So like the Canary Wharf that we see now, yeah. although it's obviously not the Canary Wharf of the 1980s, mm. a lot of the rules in play were kind of, or, or ideas were kind of established mm. in that 1980s period. So we have to kind of take it back to the story of the 19, of the late 70s kind of mid 80s absolutely. to really unpick the role of or what Canary Wharf was doing the function of Canary Wharf no that's absolutely oh, that's perfectly put thank you yes you've articulated what I'm trying to say way better <laughs> in the sense that like you have the germ of the idea of Thatcherism beginning mm. in 1979 or arguably some people would say a few years earlier before she was elected but you know she comes to power in 1979 and what you have by the late 90s with the completion of One Canada Square and the growth of Canary Wharf, you know, first it was one tower and then there's some more towers and now there's a billion towers and they're building more, is the realisation of that ideology and it, taking it on to another phase altogether and, and, and developing it even further, essentially. Um, and they are continuing to build. Walk around Canary Wharf now, there are more towers going up. These are the residential ones I referred to. But I suppose... Zooming out a little bit, mm. like what we're talking about here is something that I think Kasha and I often like to talk about, which is what we call in, you know, historiography, I think, periodization. Mm -hmm. So like, where do you draw a line? When did an era start? When did it finish? When did an era become another era? Mm. And that neat leads neatly on something else I wanted to mention, which is um, the late, great Stuart Hall and his, the way that he, well, so he coined the term Thatcherism, first mm. of all one of his many, 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 many achievements. And he described it as a new conjuncture, mm. which is a word I wanted to talk about because it's when I learned what that meant, I just found it really useful, basically, mm. for thinking about the past or even the, or in the present for that matter as well. And it's sort of, it's sort of the political zeitgeist, essentially. It's like, what is the spirit of the age? It's mm. in, in coining the term Thatcherism, like anyone can just, I could say, you know, this is a Kasherist approach you know and, you you, do, and I do often you know you can add, you can add an ism or an ist to anything obviously mm -hmm. but why is it meaningful and important to say that okay Margaret Thatcher's been elected prime minister she's not just continuing the work of the conservative party of the 1970s and the 1960s and before that she's doing something completely different here mm. and it needs it, it deserves a name you know like there's it, it deserves the name Thatcherism uh, and we need to talk about it as Thatcherism, because it is completely new and she's ripping up all the, the rule book, basically, even mm. of conservative politics mm. um, of the past. And but th that's how that's how Stuart Hall certainly conceptualised her in a lot of the his contributions in Marxism today, right? So mm. this isn't like a white, this isn't a view that everyone holds. This is like a Stuart Hallian view of mm. the, you know, because there are people that are 
more pro-Thatcher who say that it was in keeping with particular conservative sure. views, but the specific way that, that Hall kind of conceptualised her, yeah. I think is really important. And I think for them, from my understanding, I hope you don't mind me saying this, I mean, you're like, you're the expert. Don't, no, 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 I'm, I'm not an expert on Thatcherism, <laughs> um, let alone Stuart Hall. So... Uh, in uh, Jackson and Saunders' book on Thatcherism, they kind of talk. They 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 talk about the contributions of Stuart Hall in terms of the idea of conceptualizing the idea of, of Thatcherism, and they say that Thatcherism. So I'm quoting from their book. Thatcherism, for these writers, so writers like Stuart Hall, was reducible neither to the opinions and political style of Thatcher herself, nor to the actions of the government she led. Instead, it stood as a local embodiment of a global revolution, making Thatcher the architect, to an extent unprecedented in British history, of an explicitly ideological reconfiguration of domestic politics. So what they're saying is that there was a global revolution mm -hmm. um, during that time, and I think it sat at a kind of conjuncture or not maybe not conjuncture at a convergence between kind of the end of Bordism but also a, a new stage in the Cold War and also the kind of the decay of the post-war consensus mm -hmm. that's kind of where Thatcherism kind of emerged from but she was a local manifestation of a global change mm. and I think it's so interesting like you know we talk about this in cultural studies all the time where it's like you know what's the value of talking about this idea of conjuncture that you're just talking about what is the value mm. of looking at the spirit of an age what's what's the, what's the point who cares right mm. and i think it's amazing cuz stuart hall Stuart Hall conceptualised the idea of Thatcherism right at the kind of right at the beginning of Thatcherism, and yeah. I think what this idea of conjuncture allows us to do is it allows us to get a better understanding of the disparate um, events, political ideas that we can kind of create in a constellation of things that we yes. can match up in a constellation of things, which allows us to really unpick what's actually happening in our society, mm -hmm. what are the major changes that we're going through, and how that influences the way that societies are structured because it also allows us to mobilise against them. Mm -hmm. So conjuncture is yes. amazing because so it's also like, so conjuncture is both, um, you know, it's a time of rupture. So it's a time of yeah. like, that like bad things can happen, but it's also a time of like, amazing new opportunities right yeah. so it's only through recognizing th those things through the idea of like through cultural studies for mm. example that we can identify moments of conjuncture so that we can mobilize and yeah. do our best like political maneuvering Absolutely. or conceptualizing our role right yes it's so so important thank you for that incredibly passionate case for the conjuncture <laughs> i love it like though that's that's why it's so critical um because without understanding you know the new if there are if we are living in new times as mm. we you know, arguably are as of 2016-ish onwards, you know, um, then understanding what they mean, uh, maybe giving them a label, maybe not, you know, that's not necessarily uh, an integral part of it, but 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 identifying the traits, um, if we are in a new conjuncture, a new configuration of things, if there is a new structure of feeling, to use another of our favourite terms, in the air, then understanding what that is, is the only way to, you know, it's, it's the classic sort of Leninist thing of like, you need theory, as a guide to action, mm. not not for its own sake. Mm. <laughs> like, and if we want to, if we want to object to Thatcherism in 1980, then we need to know what Thatcherism is in 1979, or indeed in 1980. And um, there's a wonderful um, quote from Stuart Hall, which, in fact, is just from an absolutely wonderful hour-long conversation. It's not really a podcast, but it is in MP3 form, and it's on YouTube now. I will post the link on Twitter, on on the Cursed Objects Twitter, to a conversation between Stuart Hall and the great Les Back, who we love very much. I love him so um, much. Who, who is a goldsmith. 
Yes. His academic diary, the book, Academic Diary, I have bought for so many people. <laughs> Even if you're not an academic, it's probably one of the best bits of writing I've ever read. And also he had it as a website. Please read his book if you haven't read it. But he also created it as like a WordPress website, so you can just go on it if you don't have the money to buy the book, but please yeah. buy the book because it's so good. It's an absolute legend. And he was, his work was like so useful for me in writing my aforementioned grind book as well. And I'm not an academic. I have an undergrad degree. You know, this is very accessible and useful stuff, even if you're you're not uh, a queen of academia like Kasha. Um, but yeah, anyway, so it's a long, long conversation between just a really relaxed and interesting and warm and convivial conversation between Les and Stuart Hall before he passed away a few years ago. And they're talking about the coining of Thatcherism as a term. They're talking about the conjuncture. And Stuart Hall says, people ask me, well, how did you know? And I think that's like the richest, such a good question in itself. How do you work out we're in a new conjunction? You know, I just I just made an offhand comment to like, are we in a new one since uh, 2016? How do you work these things out? He goes on. I had to feel the accumulation of things going on and think this is a different rhythm. We've lived with one configuration and this is another one. Mm. I just love that jazz. Like He was obsessed with jazz. Anyone who's seen the brilliant documentary, The Stuart Hall Project, will know he was obsessed with Miles Davis and jazz. And it's such a jazz-like answer that you sort of mm. feel the feel the accumulation of things, which speaks to what you say, Kasia, about a constellation of... Like, you could never just look at one thing. You could never just look at Canary Wharf, not mm. knowing anything else about it, and be like, oh, we're in the Thatcherite age, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can tell from that building. <laughs> you know, it's it's about pulling together a lot of different things. It's about pulling together, like, how do the buildings look? How is the you know new leader of the Labour Party or the Conservative Party talking? Uh, not just what are they saying, but how are they presenting themselves? Mm. You know, what's on BBC One? Um, what's, I'm, I'm in danger of getting back to my favourite Jem Gilbert thing here about how you have to listen to the radio and like read mm. the, you know, like just do ordinary people things. Mm. Do not stay in your ivory tower. And that's, that's again, it's an argument for cultural studies. On that note, Kasha, there, there's one thing I, I want to show you, which is like a cultural artefact, which I think helps prove how you can accumulate those different objects, those different cultural artifacts, those different speeches, buildings, politicians, mm. whatever it might be, to understand whether we're in a new conjuncture. And it's one that is exactly about the Docklands, essentially. Have you seen the film The Long Good Friday? No. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> that's good uh, uh, for our purposes here. Mm -hmm. Really, really good gangster film. from Came out in 1980 with mm. Bob Hoskins as this gangster who is trying to reel in some Americans to... He's sort of trying to develop the, the like... The mythology around gangsterism? No. No, okay. <laughs> but it's cool. That, that would be cool. No, he's trying to develop um, the derelict Docklands, basically. Okay. Um, he's an East End gangster and... He's trying to pull in some American support, basically, some American financial support. Mm. He's a sort of he's a sort of grey zone gangster where he is a sort of quote unquote legit businessman who is incredibly not legit as well. And there's mm. a, it's a very it's quite a violent film, but it is one of it's probably the best gangster film I've ever seen. And to my surprise, when I finally saw it for the for the first time a few years ago, it is so, so relevant to all of these conversations mm. about about the sort of like tabula rasa, the clean slate of the dirty Docklands mm. that, that have been haven't been used, and and the you know basically the the way that the dollar signs or the pound signs rolled in the eyes of all the developers and when, mm. when when they were offered this opportunity to move in. So I'm going to play you this this amazingly prophetic clip okay. from Bob Hoskins as Harold Shand, the the gangster. He's talking to the investors. He's on a boat 
going down the Thames with Tower Bridge in the background, this iconic London landmark, and this is this is the spirit of Thatcherism in a sense. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not a politician. I'm a businessman with a sense of history, and I'm also a Londoner. And today is a day of great historical significance for London. Our country's not an island anymore. We're a leading European state. And I believe that this is the decade in which London will become Europe's capital. Having cleared away the outdated, we've got mile after mile of acre after acre of land for our future prosperity. No other city in the world has got right in its centre such an opportunity for profitable progress. So it's important that the right people mastermind the new London. Wow, amazing. I have so many thoughts. Can I, can I, can I just <laughs> can I say some thoughts? Please. So I was just so struck with the idea of um, like the creating, so there's an idea of creating newness, right? But like it's rooted in the idea of profitability. Mm-hmm. And I've just been, this is what I was kind of thinking about a lot when we were thinking about the idea of ideology, right? So we think about Thatcherism and often now we think about what form that has taken. Often we think about, in relation to that, what is now known as neoliberalism, right? Mm-hmm. And I just think it's so, I just think it's so interesting if we like root that in Canary Wharf. So in the Sunday Times in 1981, Thatcher said that economics are the method, the object is to change the heart and soul. And I just feel like Canary Wharf really embodies a very particular type of um, political thinking where essentially what what she was trying to do is she was trying to re-engineer and there's there's a really great quote, I can't remember who it's from, that says that she was not merely trying to reflect the wishes of the electorate, but to shape that electorate. So mm-hmm. the idea that politics wasn't just like, oh, you vote for the people that you want in. You're actually changing you're you're changing your like you're changing local populations, you're changing voters, even in that process of them voting. So they're not the same voters that they were before, they're not the same people that they were before. Like right to buy, yeah. yeah like you're, <laughs> you're making Tory voters. Well, exactly. Like how do you make Tory voters? How do you make a person a Tory? Mm. And I've just been thinking a lot, and like I know we did we explored the idea of neoliberalism in our episode on rainbow rainbow rhythms and neoliberal blues, which was all about, you know, um, about what neoliberalism is as essentially mm. and how it becomes embedded in the language of like mental health and wellness in our in our first series. Um, what I think is really striking, and this is something that we've touched on in this, is that uh, there's this idea that Canary Wharf is this like entrepreneurial kind of like neoliberal. There's an idea that the neoliberal is like, oh, you know, just do whatever you want. It's all privatization. It's just like companies buying this up. But actually Canary Wharf was funded by public money. A lot of it was public money. What was happening in this is that the Thatcher government was uh, contributing money and funds to Canary Wharf to create a Mm. kind of entrepreneurial kind of hub, right? It's Mm -hmm. not just something that they went, there you go, uh, who are the company? Canada, uh, 
Uh, it was Olympia know, and York. Olympia and York. And, and, you know, they so weren't just saying to them, here's, here's the space, you do what you want. They were also investing a lot of public money into mm -hmm. the creation of this. And there's this really excellent quote by Jeremy Gilbert, um, someone who I know that both me and you are huge fans of, um, where he kind of unpicks this for us. So he says, put simply, Neoliberalism, from the moment of its inception, advocates a programme of deliberate intervention by government in order to encourage particular types of entrepreneurial, competitive and commercial behaviour in its citizens, ultimately arguing for the management of populations with the aim of cultivating the type of individualistic, competitive, acquisitive and entrepreneurial behaviour which the liberal tradition has, has historically assumed to be the natural condition of civilised humanity undistorted by government intervention. So what this is essentially saying is that the difference between like classical liberalism, like laissez-faire and neoliberalism is that classical liberalism kind of says like, oh, left up to its own devices, people will, you know, kind of like orientate towards the market. But neoliberalism says that the government actually has to play a role in doing that. Mm. It has to play a role in creating people um, who are kind of more entrepreneurially minded, individualistic. And that's exactly, I think, what you see in Canary Wharf as, a, mm. as an emblem of that, right? Because the government put in money to create this space, yeah. to create these little shits. <laughs> like super individualistic, individualistic and entrepreneurial. Which is completely alienating to the people who, who live around it. Completely sure. alienating yeah. to the people who live around it. I mean, it might be like, it might provide some kind of inspiration for some people on some level, mm. but actually the feelings of alienation, marginalization, of, I can imagine growing up around Canary Wharf must mm. Have been so stuck, you know, the like complete poverty that so many people lived in. Yeah, and just I mean, and the the host, essentially hostile architecture. I don't think it's I've mentioned it yet, but like one of the facets of it being private space, and that's a useful little acronym here that is worth knowing: privately owned public space or POPs, which um, which also describes like the area around the GLA building on the south on the south bank. Like it looks like a public space. It looks like you know a plaza you can just hang out in. You're wrong. Well, you can, mm. but um, because it's private space, their private security guards, who have even less oversight than the Metropolitan Police, can just remove you if they don't like the look of you. There's no just cause. You can't. You can't just say like, "Wait, I think you're being racist for removing me and my, you know, teenage friends from here." As they can a, just evict. They can just get. Yeah, rid of it's people. like it's private space. Like it's like your house. You can do, you, do whatever you like. Do you know what? Can I just say it's so interesting because when we were walking around, I remember us walking around and me being like, "Oh my god, this is the perfect architecture for skaters." You know, as it's if like, skaters would be allowed there. Well, that's exactly. The thing, yeah, and yeah. That's when you said that. To Tantalizing me, you were like, them with it. <laughs> well, yeah. You were like, "Well, the reason why there aren't skaters is because they can just get taken off by these Absolutely. by these security guards so quickly." And also, it was just so like, many things to ollie you on. Know, you know, not to sound like a pretentious academic, but it's just so stark when you're walking around the area, the lack of like liminal, the things that we consider liminal, right, on our peripheries. So you, you and I might walk down the street anywhere and you'd see skaters, you'd see like people milling about, there might be homeless people, there are like different types of, of, of people in those spaces. And it's so interesting that in Canary Wharf, there is an absence of people living because yeah. it's not for them. That's no. not what it's for. It's, it's there to generate capital, basically, mm. and to run the run the world's economy. Um, and it's been very successful with that. You know, like London is the financial centre that that Harold Shand in that clip that we just watched wanted it to be. Mm. You know, it's extraordinarily prophetic that movie. It would have been would have been shot presumably, or at least began shooting before Thatcher even came to power. Mm. And yeah, some it captured 
what happened in the ensuing 10, 20 years so well. But yeah, just to speak to that idea of like the hostility that sort of the space that is Canary Wharf presents to people from the surrounding area, I'm going to just throw back to the grime thing again and quote uh, Tinchy Strider from uh, from Bo, former number one single artist and legend of, of Rough Squad. He grew up on the Crossways Estate, which is a very different kind of tower block that in, in Bow, um, known as the three flats locally, three sort of three tower blocks. Um, and he told me when I interviewed him a few years ago, uh, when I was growing up, you could see Canary Wharf everywhere you went. We felt like, oh, wow, do we get to go there one day? It felt really close, but really f- far away at the same time. Like it wasn't really anywhere for us to be. Everything felt fresher and cleaner there than where we grew up. It felt like a different world. Felt like when you go there, you have to be on your best behavior, and that's right. You know, you do <laughs> essentially in the in that you know you are not subject to the laws of the land in quite the same way um, as if you were walking, you know, down your street in your neighborhood. Say that's an amazing. So quote. so you know, just a good great example of how there's one law for you know for the rich and one law for everyone else. Essentially, oh, and then D- Dizzy Rascal, you know, sort of on the one hand, at one point, sort of said that something similar to what Target had said that, you know, Canary Wharf's this sort of reminds him of London. It's iconic of London, which I think is kind of undeniable for better mm. or worse than say the Shard is iconic of London now. Mm. You, you know, you can't avoid it. You turn a corner, and <laughs> particularly the a hilly bit and it's yeah. just there, you know. Cause <laughs> oh shit, you're here again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you um, following me? <laughs> so the, Dizzy was sort of broadly pro Canary Wharf when he was interviewed once he was rich and famous. But when he was two th- in 2003, when he was just starting out and he was a teenager and he was still living in a you know, flat with his mum on the Crossways estate, same one as, as Tinchy, he, he, told, uh, he told the BBC, so he's literally just 18 at this point, Dizzy. He said, that's Canary Wharf. He's pointing from, Canary, from uh, Crossways estate towards, towards Canary Wharf. That's Canary Wharf. It's in your face. It takes the piss. There are rich people there moving in people who work in the city and you can tell they're not living the same way as us so even as an 18 year old he was just like it's it's hostile mm. you know that is a that is a that is a fuck you basically mm. to all to all of us that live around it um it's very clear that that is not for us and that is separate from us and that this is you know there is a hard line there what else did you make of the of the clip i loved all the outfits <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, do watch the longer funny. I love the vibes. <laughs> yeah, no, he's, I mean, he's very shouty. It's an amazing performance from Bob Hoskins in that film. But I think, you know, the reason I showed you it is I want, I want, just want to make the point that it's things like that that help us understand the spirit of the age mm. um, as much as it is looking at buildings and trying to work out who owns them and, mm. you know, like what the planning regulations are around them and slightly dry stuff like that. You know, the reason cultural studies is important is because you can gauge what the conjuncture, what the Thatcherite conjuncture is from watching The Long Good Friday, mm. you know, just as much as you can get it from reading very long, difficult books. <laughs> <laughs> but it's ide- the ideal is to do both. <laughs> That's the posi- is that the position of Cursed Objects? Or speak on your, our behalf here. I will, only, I will only read books if forced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how's that in and against the state coming, Cash? <laughs> right, and um, to avoid... Just me talking about the Docklands for 17 more hours. I think it's probably about time we round up, Kasha. Um, but uh, yeah, suffice it to say, maybe we'll do maybe we'll do one on the Royal Docks next time. You uh, should which record is a podcast just you talking about. No, that. I don't. No, I would did, listen to it. No, I don't want to do that, <laughs> and nobody wants to listen to that. Um, but uh, yeah, there's definitely. I would definitely advocate if you're in London or visiting London. Just having a walk around there or indeed doing the thing of trying to get from Bow, <laughs> trying to go mm. on foot from Poplar 
um, or Bow, which is the other area just outside. Do you know it's the so city interesting walls. that idea of like um, kind of hostile architecture or like carefully planned architecture? Because I've actually, when you told me that, I was so fascinated by it, and it was just crazy because you just see it popping up in so many different scenarios. So mm. like, if you look at a map of Belfast, mm. for example, mm. there is the same kind of like there's like motorways that run around the centre of the city. Mm. So it's like also kind of created as a way to separate different people and separate the city from yeah. different like people with. Different different I guess guess beliefs but mm. not really beliefs because it's not just about religion it's actually about like ethno-nationalist identities and whatever but anyway that's another episode, that's another episode. <laughs> but you know like looking thinking about how Canary Wharf looks and like the way that it separates different people really helps or has really helped me to understand completely different areas of, of like space and architecture because mm. the thing is is that you don't even realize you don't even realize how prevalent it is until you think about it like you know the way that there are like there are a few estates near me like queen's crescent or whatever but you don't know queen's crescent exists unless you know queen's crescent exists what, what is it sorry it's is it like, like an a... estate just like kind of like between what kind of estate <laughs> <laughs> like no no i mean do you mean like a council estate or oh do you yeah mean like it's, a, a, council, it's right, like right. a kind of like number of council sorry, estates. so it's only confusing because like some of the terminology around like aristocratically. Oh yeah, no, not one of those. <laughs> I don't mean like a country estate, but like you know, the there's the de Beauvoir estate. Yeah. Confusingly, yeah. means the area of the vast area of like northeast London that is owned by the de Beauvoir family. It doesn't yeah, mean a no. council estate. Then this is, is like a number of estates that like that yeah. like, are around this very Queen's Crescent. Right. And if you don't just walk around there, mm. because there aren't really that many buses, you just don't really know that it exists unless you know it exists because it's meant to be kept out of Oh I see. Out of like the right. main thoroughfare. Yeah, yeah, out yeah. of like the main kind of like Yeah, which parts. is which is which is, you know, just all further points to sort of I guess the general thesis of this episode which is that like the built environment um yeah. can be very cursed mm. and it can um and it very much tells the story of the political and social and cultural mores and ideas mm. of the age that it was created in you know yeah. and, and like that 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 hiding away of like of a council estate tells us something about about you know the the way that London is governed and the local council think and, and the planning authorities think and so on. And I guess we can just wonder, you know, what would Canary Wharf be like if instead of being pumped full of capital, mm. it was just given a cuddle? <laughs> <laughs> that's a lovely note to end on. <laughs> Slightly surreal, which I quite like. Yeah, that's, that's nice. Um, thanks so much for listening, guys. Uh, we really, really appreciate your time uh, spent with us. Come for a walk with us around Canary I mean, don't literally, but, you know, why don't you go for a walk around Clary <laughs> Wharf on your own, all right? Listen to this and go for a wonder. <laughs> yeah, right. um, exactly. And do check us out on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. But more importantly, please do sign up for our Patreon if you're, mm. if you're so inclined and you can afford it. Um, and you've had some money trickle down to you from Canary Wharf because we because we haven't because we haven't yeah we're ramping <laughs> and we're ramping up production in the same in in a true neoliberal fashion of our episodes when series two finishes so this is what like episode eight I've lost track but there's a few more there's a couple more uh, we are going to start doing more Patreon only episodes um, we're also going to keep doing the free ones don't worry as well. But that's the plan, basically, for the spring and the summer. So join us, only four quid a month, and you get to support us in our endeavours and our wanderings. And our wanderings. <laughs> and my Guinness. And, and, and Hush's Guinness. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.